We would like to welcome our listeners to the podcast series Who's Universal, which we are hosting in the run-up to the White West Conference, taking place at Aus der Kultur an der Welt in Berlin. My name is Anna Pinto, and I'm co-organizing the White West Conference together with Kader Rakia and Ansan Franke. Our guest today is Ramon Amaru. Ramon Amaru is lecturer in Art and Visual Culture of the Global South at University College London. His writings, research, and practice emerge at the intersections of Black study, psychopathology, digital culture, and the critique of computational reason. Among his most recent publications is the essay, Threshold Value, published with Eflux Architecture in February 2020. His forthcoming monograph, to be published by Sternberg Press, deals with machine learning and the substance of race. Welcome, Ramon Amaru. I would like to start uh, maybe um, asking you about your forthcoming book that surveils the incompatible relation between machine learning and black being, as you put it. And uh, I'm very interested in your perspective and how you want to situate this problematic within the metaphysics of black being, because there are a lot of like uh, critiques being currently uh, put forth to uh, digital governmentality, but they all seem to revolve around this question of inclusion, right? They all seem to revolve around the question that, uh, you know, like um, uh, uh, machine learning and especially like this uh, uh, um, image capturing devices are not, uh, you know, like uh, tuned or do not have the capacity to capture uh, black skin. And so this question seems to always be posed in terms of like how to improve the technology, uh, whereas you seem to articulate a much more crucial critique. Right. I think that, um, you know, in one way, one of the fundamental issues I'm trying to address with the book is to try and think beyond the question of representation. Uh, particularly when it comes to racialized individuals and groups. You know, we, we tend to try to tackle the problem of difference in itself or any types of racial violences or stereotypes and so on and so forth by, by defaulting to the idea that, you know, if these individuals or groups are represented in any form of discourse or debate or um, or even technology in this sense that that will somehow mitigate the problem or at minimum uh, reduce the impact of these types of problems. And what we've seen in the last few years is once again this type of recurrent um, incompatibility um, one between thinking about the actual lived experience of racialized individuals uh, along with certain technological apparatus that we that that come to sort of define how we interact with the world both socially politically economically and so on and so forth and and so the the book tries to it goes from this kind of starting point and almost so I would like to say the starting point of incompatibility in itself um, so I, I make some some pretty daring uh, assumptions in the book um, you know, that first assumption is sort of going back to the, the Fanonian principle um, as set forth by Franz Fanon in his first book, uh, Black Skin, White Mass, and thinking about um, the objectification of the racialized, in the racialized being. You know, in his sense, he's thinking about the colonized individual and how they're already relegated through visual perception as being an object in culture. They're no longer human. They're not human beings. They're just an object to be exchanged, to be subjected, to be so on and so forth. And so I started to think about whether this has really changed in our day. You know, is the racialized being, you know, the the you know, is the person from the global south, you can think of different communities in this sense, you know, has it really been, have these individuals really gained the status of being human to begin with? And this is an important question because when we think about contemporary tools such as machine learning and AI and, and, and deep mining, so on and so forth, we tend to approach it from the perspective that we're dealing with two categories and that is human and non-human. And I'm not certain that we've resolved the issue of certain humans not being seen as human. 
So in a way, it's, it's you know, for me, when, you know, ra racism or racial stereotype is replicated in the algorithmic space, it's already preconditioned by the fact that we have not reconciled as humans um, our own relationship with, with individuals of difference. And so in this way, I kind of resist even calling a racialized beings a body in itself. You know, and here I sort of pick up on, you know, Fred Moten's intervention and in thinking about, you know, how imperialism, colonialism, and even this type of substance of race, if we were to follow Sylvia Winter, has already captured ownership of the body. You know, we know this from the history of eugenics and into the Enlightenment, so on and so forth. And so in a way, the body itself has been contaminated by these logics of hierarchy, these logics of fragmentation, so on and so forth. And I would even reach as far as say, you know, this doesn't, it doesn't begin or even end in issues of racial category. You know, we see this across gender politics and, you know, politics of sexuality and so on and so forth. Um, but But when I think about you know, this type of intervention, what, what really becomes missing is the idea of being in itself. You know, what does it mean to actually be a sentient being? What does it mean to both live within these categories and also with the type of, you know, as Fanon would say, the certain uncertainty of living outside of these categories as well, and the types of anxieties that, you know, that impose themselves but when I was thinking about this type of objectification, how an object can also have this type of metaphysical relationship with the world and even the object self, you know, as a sentient being, you know, I, I, I didn't want to immediately put this in into a negative discursive space. You know, because, you know, black life in general, and of course, I, when I say black life, I use the capital B, I'm really talking about the person of difference, you know, those that have for some, in some type of way, as Ashil Mbembe would say, you know, have been represented by this type of dissonance and logics that's been imposed by imperialism and colonialism. So I sort of subsume everyone into this capital B. Um, and and when I look at this and I look at the value of life and the value of experience that has both dealt with and navigated these recurrent moments of technological subjection, what, what reveals itself is actually a fantastic dynamic where life itself can both operate within that duress of those logics of oppression, but also in a very affirmative very catalytic type of intervention with the world is almost this refusal to be merely subjected by the world. And I wanted to see what would happen if I could write a book, write a text, and where I can take that object, let it be an object as it is in the dominant perception of the world, but let it also operate within both the subjection of the world but also in a very generative space of potential. And then what might that mean for this object? So in a way, the, the, the book sort of starts with this, you know, a very type of, you know, this lens of subjection and oppression, and then goes into a very technical space to almost think about how the lived experience of the machine unfolds, right? It doesn't have a lived experience, but I'm trying to demonstrate if it did, this is how it actually would be deconstructed. And, you know, and my attempt is to sort of end on an affirmative note to say, if those two are brought together in their incompatibility with the world, what might we achieve? And so in a way, it's a very speculative claim and it's a broad claim, but it's one that, you know, based on your question, I feel is necessary, potentially, you know, particularly given the failure um, of the world to be able to reach a sense of equitability in thinking about representation itself. Yeah, it's a, it really calls for a very fundamental rethink of like this relationship between life and technology. And um, I was wondering if you could, um, you know, like unpack this better for our listeners, because of course, technology and especially artificial intelligence nowadays uh, is very much organized around an evolutionary schema. So you would uh, talk about artificial intelligence in ways that go far beyond what the technology allows, right? And I believe this you call this like the protean white imaginary. So basically this idea that uh, somehow 
uh, you know, like intelligence is something that can be disembodied, that can exist in this like immaterial plane alone. And uh, uh, I think it, this is like very much the locus of the critique of like how, you know, like uh, this disembodiment connotes whiteness and by connoting whiteness, uh, you know, like creates or, or basically pushes out black being or like renders black being into some sort of like category of unbelonging. But I, I mean, it's, you know, in a way it's a provocative claim in itself. And, you know, I think falls in line with, you know, the provocations of the book and thinking about, you know, when we do think about machine perception or even machine vision, you know, are we placing an undue value on our own imaginary that it's some type of sentience that can that can see, capture meaning and articulate that meaning on its own. And a lot of work has been done you know, in several fields of study, in several areas, you know, art, academia, even industry, to think about, um, you know, the disparities and replications that machines might have, you know, for human perception. But there's some type of desire, there's some type of resistance that we have to considering it as a machine in itself. And that's not to, that's not to say that I'm advocating ignoring the human impact of those machines, because obviously, you know, the data that those machines, that algorithms learn on, you know, it's very much infused with, with our own human behaviors, you know, as engineers interact and program these algorithms, you know, they're human beings and they have their own fallibilities that go into those processes. What I'm more so concerned about is the surprise that happens at the output of the algorithmic process and how we are in this this type of recurrent circle of surprise and we know is implicitly even explicitly a part of our human dynamics it's a part of the world we built it we collectively built it we may not have been the individuals that have programmed it or have done early research in machine learning and ai like in the 50s but this is the world that we collectively created and it's doing its job because we created it almost in our own image. We want, we created it to optimize our own processes. We created it to learn and predict our own human behaviors. We created it to streamline and make efficiency and, and, and do all of these things, make it easier for us to purchase things, make it easier, us, easier for us to to see the world, makes you know, and even at this point, make it easier for us to drive or to see space, so on and so forth. And somehow along that process, we forget that that point of desire is still originates from our own human desire. And then we forget that those desires are attached to other desires that we replicate and act out in other situations in the world. In this sense, you know, thinking about, you know, our racial perceptions, our perceptions on gender and sexuality, our political perceptions, economic perceptions, so on and so forth. You know, there, there's something about us human beings where we, we love to categorize. Our understanding of the world is very much based on categorization, the, the ranking and sorting of those categories. And then, the, and then infusing that with our own experiences and views about the present and the future in order to capture meaning from those categories. And somehow we've created a, a series, an array of technologies that then mimic that type of salacious desire that we have for this categorization. And then once it mirrors it, it's, I'm sorry, mimics it. It's almost like putting a mirror to our face and then we draw back in shock, disgust, and surprise, right? And, and so when I think about this type of imaginary, you know, it, it immediately connects with, you know, what Sylvia Winter is calling, you know, this, um, this ceremony that, has, that must be found. Of course, she's pointing to the historical uh, concept of humanism and at the dissolution of the divine, you know, the the white European, European, and I would add, you know, heterosexual male attempts to take the divine's place as being the sort of pinnacle of the world. And this is what Lewis Gordon is calling the sort of white prototypicality, you know, how this being becomes the prototype of the world and then which everyone and everything is measured towards and against. And what we've seen 
across the last few decades is thinking about how even this figure of the prototype has been dissolved. I mean, we see that in politics today, right? We aren't really talking about voting. We aren't really talking about statues. We're talking about the actual the the actual pushback from the dissolution of the prototype of what is acceptable standard in society and more voices are being heard to challenge that. So, you know, we aren't really talking about the subject. We're talking about that social battle in itself. And, and what I'm trying to address in the book is thinking about how can I extend this concept from winter into the algorithmic space? And, and, and what emerges is this idea that, you know, perhaps, you know, I'm not the first person to say this, you know, come up with it, but to think about how the algorithmic has now replaced that protein imaginary, how it has now replaced that ceremonial view in which we are to just push all of our hopes, anxieties about the future, hope that it gives us some type of, of, of prediction, almost like an oracle that we can then view the world because that's the place that we gave the white heterosexual male and that's the place where we gave the divine. And at the failure of those, you know, following winter, you know, are we again divorcing ourselves from action in the world? You know, and even ethics, you know, that's a loaded term, so I won't mention it too much, but even ethics in the world and placing it in a tool that we've already created in our own image. And so you see how the, for me, that's where the contradiction lies in itself. Can I try um, just also for better understanding of uh, our listeners um, who might not all be familiar with, with the two articles by Sylvia Winter, um, the one um, with the title, The Ceremony Must Be Found, if I remember correctly. Yes, that's part of the title. And then the other one, Ceremony Found. Ceremony Found, yes, yes. Um, and and they're they're very. I mean, Sylvia Winter has extraordinarily long titles, so to do them by memory is an achievement in itself. But <laughs> in my memory of this of these articles, um, she kind of she kind of um, establishes the vision of 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 a future science, right? Of a new science. Um, and she draws on seminal anti-colonial thinkers such as Fanon and Césaire um, in in calling for a new science that deals differently with what she calls our hybrid being human as being um, biological beings and being narrative-based, mythopoetic um, uh, or autopoetic in the later work. Um, um, you know, mod modern humans in the sense of that she expands to like a framework of 200,000 years, no? um, thereby displacing the question of um, the human of hominization and rise of civilization narratives in major ways and grounding them anew. And then she speaks about this kind of sociogen sociogenic slash cosmogonic uh, replicator codes through who both texts insofar as I remember consistently in the sense of the, the morphing um, of these uh, sort of primary differences um, which in the case of Christian cosmology starts with fallen flesh and perfect divine realm and how they being re-scripted um, uh, through the history of colonial imperialism or, or racial capitalism. Um, the, the ceremony that she's calling for is somehow one that would enable us to undercut the replication of these codes no? um, in terms of actually allowing us to understand, to understand them as cosmogonic and sociogenic. So my question to you is, it would be, I think, highly valuable if we try to unpack this a little bit in the sense of, is it, is my understanding right that, that somehow the claim that you've been um, making, um, the speculative proposition, is that the, the algorithmic is today where these codes are replicated, insofar that 
sort of they consist because she also speaks i think of this gonic and genic and genes and genre consistently in order to understand these things in these terms as as genealogies and genres no? um, and is it that this that this kind of mirror or, or mimicking um, infrastructure of the algorithmic does does it recreate the genre of these um, of these humanist colonial racializing overrepresenting codes? Is 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 that what is happening? Um, or in in how how can I sync these two things together? Uh, her her claims of the need to undercut sort of let's say broadly 500 years of a particular imperial social uh, uh, replicator code um, and what is the relationship to of this code to the code to coding a very complicated complex question I'll, I'll attempt to take in parts and and i think that's a great a great way to break the argument down um, for me in the book um, it's it's both where whereas the algorithmic um recreates these type of of genre reinforcing uh you could say forces in the world you know that have genealogical roots and that's one of the reasons why i trace the genealogy of machine learning and ai into statistical processes in the beginnings of our obsession with data in the 17th century so one of the reasons why i do that is to create a type of genealogical moment so i can sort of bring these logics forward but i do it with the intention just to show that the the, the these types of what winter would call these type of genre these types of genres are already steeped within our understanding of how we relate to other objects in the world. So that's my intention is to sort of bring that out and show that explicitly so much so as she does with types of humanism and how it brings that forth. But in a way, by my intent is by revealing those logics, by revealing those consistent type of uh, ideas and desires that we have in the world that, that express themselves through the social, political, and economic. By bringing that to the fore, what I hope to show is that our anxieties with machine learning and AI are nothing new. Because I believe that a, an overly concentrated focus on those technologies as being discriminatory distracts us from the potential to bend the genres in which the algorithmic allow. So in other words, we, we, so in other words, the, the recurrent idea of technological apparati becoming mirrors of these genres, they almost become openings. If we sort of use this, they become portals. Which use a sort of sign, you know, a sci-fi thing. They become a portal in which we are to look at our social behavior because we can see it in the replication of technological apparatus that we've come into relationship with. And we've seen that across, you know, many different forms. And one way we could think about it today is, you know, something like Facebook and how it becomes the medium in which highlights our own senses of nationalism, our own senses of post post pre and post truth and so on and so forth so it's not facebook facebook is actually the medium that sort of illuminates these dynamics that are there and so in a way i say it's both because i want to show where that genre becomes explicit but in this explicitness i do see machine learning and ai as a type of gift because it reduces the obscurity for us to actually look reflexively at those genres, our own microgranular participations in those genres, in order for us to break down our own actions and perpetuate future actions to sort of bend those dynamics. And this return for me is is similar to Winter, who, you know, one of the reasons why she's picking up on Fanon is, is a claim that he makes that's often dismissed. It's stated strongly, but it's also dismissed when it comes to his psychosocial function. You know, when, when Fanon is saying we need a new radical humanism, 
what he is saying is not just the desire for new humanism. What he is stipulating all through Black Skin, White Mask is that he is re-articulating several different genres of philosophy. And he's including the lived experience of the racialized in that philosophy only to show that it requires both a switch in perception of each party involved in those dynamics. And so for him to put it base, you know, to put it uh, simply, so basically what he's saying, in order for this new humanism to mer- emerge, it's not both the colonizer and the colonized have to have a complete violent upheaval of their perception, a rearticulation of that perception, which starts from the violent upheaval of one individual's perception and their relationship to themselves and the world. And we don't often talk about that. <laughs> and so when I put those two together, that's why I'm seeing this. It's not, it's not the ceremony per se. It's not, the, it's not the identification of the genre per se. It's the relationship between one identifying the specificities of the cultural process in order for one to realize one's own positionality within that process in order for one to break one's own perception in that process, which then would emerge the question of what do I do next? And, 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 and so what, because what happens, and this is why I don't want to be lodged in representation, because what happens is we see an affront, right? Whether that be in the categorical or whether it be with the technological, we see an affront, we have a, effectual experience to that affront. We have a discursive experience and then we skip all the way to, well, what do we do about it? What's next? And it essentially is the equivalent of calling in the exterminator who refuses to find the root of the problem, right? And if anyone has ever had issues with any type of vermin or any type of pest, whether that be for, you know, wasps or all the way to mice, you know, it's superficial exercise unless you can find the actual origin of entry. And once you find that origin of entry, see, then the questions of, you know, is it morally right to kill them or just move them? You know, should I plug the hole or should I move completely? Should I, you see, all these decision trees come after the moment of recognition of the origin of the problem. And for some reason, when we think about our combination of humans and our relationship with the technologies that are a part of us, we like to separate those as being mutually exclusive of those codes. And so what I'm trying to do in the book is, that's why the beginning part of the book does sort of, it tries to identify, you know, these genealogical logics how these genres came to be. And then what it attempts to do is it attempts to find the specificities of those articulated codes within the algorithm itself. So I want to see where it is. Because that's the one thing that Fanon and Winter, they, you know, they, they didn't really stipulate is where is it? I know where it is generally, right? <laughs> I know how the epistemic functions. They've taught me that, but I want to see in machine learning AI, I want to see exactly how it traverses from point A to point B to point C. And in doing so, what it can help me do is build micro relationships to then identify where are their moments of breach? Where can this be rearticulated? Zoom in a little bit into these observations. Yeah. So, so one important concept, um, that I talk about in the book in a very obscure type of way uh, is the differential equation. You know, when, when I look at the, you know, in research about, you know, the genealogy of statistics and even early mathematics, you know, you have several moments where ideas about the world were articulated into symbolic mathematics. You know, we tend to think of maths today as just being these functions that we learn. And then for most of us, we just either have a love or hate for mathematics, mostly a hate, and we just ignore them. They're just something. We, we sort of treat them like they're meteorites that fell out of the sky, 
Like, you know, after the dinosaurs, there was algebra. You know, it just came, it just emerged. Um, and when you look at the history of mathematics, especially uh, the philosophy of maths, what you find are individuals, very clever individuals, who are trying to make sense of certain phenomena in the world, patterns, so on and so forth. And they're using mathematics to try to formulize their observations about the world. Right? They, weren't, they weren't perfect. They knew they weren't perfect. What they were were a type of language. We can think of it as, as our own type of verbal languages, right? No matter what language you speak, it doesn't truly enclose every dynamic in that language. So we have to come up with new words. We have to come up with new sayings, so on and so forth to represent that. The same thing happened in mathematics. And one of those attempts, you know, particularly by uh, Gottfried Leibniz, was to try to think about how can you symbolically represent human dynamics. And what I mean by that is human motion. Because algebra prior to that could only account really for like a straight line, like a resume, you know, point A to point B. Um, and Leibniz comes in and says, okay, humans don't behave like straight lines. Right? Even when we're attempting to go in a straight line, we don't go in straight lines, right? And so he's looking at ways to subsume all of those dynamics into a mathematical function that can account for each moment of variation that might happen over time. So let's put this simply, you're going from your bedroom to the kitchen. In some of us, it's a straight line, but as you leave point A in the bedroom, you forget to put your socks on, so you got to loop around again. <laughs> then on halfway there, then you sneeze, so you're off course a little bit. And then all of this sort of life contingency happens. And Leibniz begins to develop this idea of differential calculus to try to account for each moment of that type of behavior. And of course, I'm, I'm sort of, uh, you know, reducing this greatly. So the mathematicians will completely yell at me. But for the purposes today, we'll just go with it. But by subsuming that motion into a type of symbolic representation, what it did was reduce the potential of motion itself, right? Because now all of a sudden you can represent motion on a graph, dynamic motion, curvatures, all these sort of things in life. And I keep, you know, it's weird because I, I'm sure, I don't know if she picked up on this, but I'm mentioning mathematical symbols with human behavior. And because a lot of people don't realize that they were in early mathematical theory, they were put together. A lot of these very symbolic symbols were based off of human and natural behavior. So they were already together. So when Leibniz is talking about subsuming motion, he's also talking about subsuming human contingency, which is why he could propose a 12-point plan of colonization. You know, the universal language he's talking about is systematically, mathematically enabling colonial countries to communicate with, you know, what they considered at the time to be natives, right? It was all formulated through sort of mathematics. And he develops this idea of the differential, which is in differential calculus. And because it's so inept, it's so, it's so ad adaptive and so almost perfect in a way at subsuming these types of motion, it has become the underpinnings of most algorithmic processes that we know today. It is very difficult to find a class of algorithms that don't have, especially in neural networks that do a lot of facial recognition that don't rely on the differential equation. And so to know that, right? So to know that this, this symbol, so I can look at an algorithm and I see that symbol. And if I know the history of that symbol, I already know that that history was an attempt to colonize individuals. I already know that that history was an attempt to sort and control populations for various reasons, right? Food, resources, so on and so forth. So already, how can I then displace this machine that's running with this technology in the background from its, from its origins? And I'm not suggesting that the differential will automatically replicate those things. That's not what happens. But it's already a part of, that's what I'm suggesting, and it's that it's already a part of how, we, how the algorithm even views itself and how we view the function of the algorithm. So then to 
ask after the fact that this is not what we want, how do we separate this, is, is nonsensical. We would have to completely go back and re-articulate, just as Fanon's done, we would have to re-articulate our purposes for the algorithm, its mathematical functions. We'd have to re-articulate computer science programs. They'll completely hate me here. But you, you can no longer start off a course with, here's math, right? <laughs> because it's not math. It's social. It, the entire system would need to be it, interact with sort of this, this upheaval that would then that would then disrupt that type of coding that had already been placed within the systems that we consider to be sophisticated or complicated. I'm just wondering um, how I can understand that in relation to you know, sort of also, let's say, with the post-Leibniz sort of 19th century battles over the understanding of both capital, of abstraction, and materialism and monisms you know this yeah uh, you know it's interesting to even mention the last one which is the monad because of course you know this is also what i address in one chapter of the book and coming through this idea of the divine origin of the nomad because prior to developing the differential differential leibniz's concern was how do we justify various moments of difference that exist within one system. It sounds like the differential, right? And he has he hadn't formulated that symbol yet, but he's thinking through it and he calls it a matter of uh, incompulsibility. And what he is saying is that this is a process in which different entities, entities of difference can exist within the same ecology. However, he postulates that these forms of difference, the reason why they can be different and be in an equilibrium per se, is the fact that they are an extension from the simplest substance, which is the divine. So basically your rib, your rib from Adam, your Eve, basically. <laughs> We're all Eve. You, you, you may be a different person as identified biologically as a different sex. You may be a different perception. You may have attached to you uh, evil or so and so forth, but you derive from a single source. And that's, he's calling that the simple substance. And what he's trying to do is explain why there's, why there's difference in the world. But the consequence that comes with this is because he believes we're all derived as these monads of difference from a single source, any dynamic within that system would then be a naturally imposed equilibrium. <laughs> so therefore justification, and that's what he used for justification of capital, justification of data imposition, justification of racial imposition, right? Because it was seen as the natural order so it basically brought the positivist point of view into light. And, and we see this post-Leibniz even going into cybernetics, right? Because <laughs> you think about the first wave of cybernetics, which wasn't necessarily political, but the attempt was is to think about the discrete categories of difference, create patterns within those discrete categories of difference, collate them, in some sense sort them as the tool to understand the world, without having to question the relationship in themselves, right? It was just given as an a priori. These all derive from a substance and I can observe the behavior and then you go into different forms of cybernetics that think about feedback loops, so on and so forth. And of course that emerges into what we know today in terms of technology. And so it has a very long, durable, strand of relationship and, and how we view those data points and those codes in the world. Right? And this is the reason why Leibniz was very much steeped in language, because this is what we replicate in language, right? <laughs> and this is why Fanon is even returning. Interesting, because of course, this sort of cybernetic and information theory turn or, or the order with which it is isomorphic in especially in the second half of the 20th century is based on yet this other sort of 
grand breakthrough in formalization of the uh, of the earlier 20th century in 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 math in logic everything pertaining with the fundamental crisis basically of this of the european sciences right um quickly hark, hark back to something i haven't understood in at an earlier point when you started to introduce this project which had to do with the with the senses no and with the with the sensory and with perception um and i'm just interested in whether yeah first maybe you can explain that and then i'm trying to i'm trying to understand or trying to make also a link with something that greatly concerns me um or that 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 i'm think trying to understand in 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 sylvia winter's proposition of the new science again um which is in a way she seems to say to me that um this new science um and that is so, sort of also in a in a sort of conflict i think with the at least the the quoting of the sort of cybernetic concept of autopoiesis um uh, she tries to say that that only from a kind of what i would call liminal position or she calls the gaze from below these codes can actually come into view you know and this kind of this kind of return to the roots um problem um is unthinkable without without experiential knowledge um that is not caught up completely in the webs of significance of a given replicating system like there is a kind of there is an there is an attempt to make a, to to base a science on the liminal and to link the liminal with a certain um aspect of the sensory that is not reduced that, that may be reducible which may be what ceremony and ritual are perhaps also about but not cannot be abstracted or that resists uh, abstraction so i'm wondering what you what what happens in your eye in your view with this kind of question of the sensory and the liminal in this uh, in these algorithmic uh, regimes in in one sense this is a very important question uh because it's actually what i begin to tease at the end of the book um and it's actually this is what this question is actually what underpins what i'm calling the black technical object i i i introduce it i talk about the dynamics around it but it's it's really in the uh in the next book uh hint hint precursor it's in the next book where i address this question this exact question because what what winter does is by lodging by lodging the primary argument within autopoesis in a way she you know i argue that it it creates a a a self-folding trap on the idea of then what the liminal might mean as an exchange of knowledge and what i mean by that is when i think about the cyber, in a cybernetic sense when i think about the fundamental flaws of autopoesis i you know we return to the basic function of autopoesis in itself one it's assuming a closed system of relation and then it's looking at the particular moments those dynamic moments within that relation and so in a way you know winter's intervention is so important because she's sort of extending she's she's picking up the baton from fanon and basically saying okay let's let's now you've revised and included black lived experience into philosophy this is this is social chaining you've included it into human development that's this critique of psychoanalysis that's where he's coming up with sociogenic you know she's and then she takes it and says okay given that point how do we include this within the system of operation and and i would argue that she's making a direct play at the monadic sense of that that closed system of relation and it's appropriate for her in that sense to then use autopoesis as a type of launching point to think about this closed system of relation but where i would where i deviate with this logics is is the implications of that because the implication still lodges oneself within a relationship that is in a way not necessarily predefined but but overly determined and so you instead and so i and so at the end of the book i begin to tease a more uh, simondon and you know gibel simondon's type of view 
where we, we would substitute autopoiesis for a type of ontogenesis, which would be this open field of relation where every moment of the relation would become a sort of pre-individual state. It would become a precondition that is only recognized when these disparate forces, these dynamics collide, amplify into something recognizable and then dissipate right again into the system. And it has certain implications. And what that means is difference itself gets muddled. It's no longer able, you can no longer identify it because you can only identify it by its collision with, you know, its intersectionality 5.0, basically. <laughs> you know, you can only recognize it through the collision, which means it's already passed, which means your decision to act on it is already preempted. And so what it does is it opens up the autopoetic lens into being more of an open field of relationship, but it also redefines the relationships within them. Because in a Simontian point of view, this type of mode of the technological object is one that it already has an equal standing with sentient beings, not in the sense of a terminator type of equal standing, but in the sense of it's human because we created it. We're already in relationship to it. It's not something where we need to question the relation because we are the relation. And so if that's the case, and I combine that with, this is why I'm sort of pushing at the end of the last chapter into the next book. Now I'm questioning if I now combine that with the sociogenic lens, if I now combine that with the staging that Winter has set forth, what is the potential for the Black being in an ontogenetic system? And, and it's here that I think we could potentially arrive at a new type of abstraction. And I, I believe that the, the way that the algorithm functions, it allows us a space in which to articulate a new form of being which has yet to be realized in our existing relationship. And I basically use computational power to say that, which is the computational power that is in re this not recognized by human eyes. This is pure computation to computation. And, I, and as I argue in the book, this is a moment, this is the first moment in our human history where there is something on the planet that is operating outside of our own sensory and perceptual field. It's operating in communication of itself. And I believe that that so whereas Winter is saying that, you know, the liminal can be found within the exchange of knowledge in a relation, what I'm saying is the liminal, we already know that relation, the liminal can be found in that which we are not perceptually tuned into. And that's what I'm seeking with the black technical object. Anything like, of course, it's it's a it's very interesting to see this kind of mobilization of of this ontogenesis ontogenesis. Uh, and in Simondon's understanding of the technical object sort of turned explicitly against that which in the sort of Western philosophical tradition has, has become ontology, basically. I mean, it's a counter ontology uh, um, project. I, I uh, find this uh, line of argument extremely, um, I mean, it, it's, it ends up to be nothing else than also pulling the carpet underneath basically Yet another time, in a way, of what Winter has done under underneath of the project of anthropology, no? and um, in the sense that that the uh, that anthropology is so much based on this kind of defining defining its relation to a certain set of uh, codified um, relations of uh, to to and feeding off alterity, and uh, this is what you seem to both displace and invert uh, by uh, in the operation you've described. That, I mean, that, in a way, that's my attempt. And I think that's why it's important to return to the psychosocial as well, to think about that type of psychic individuation as, you know, Denise Farrar de Silva says, you know, a type of act in itself. You know, what I, I've called in other spaces, this type of act of thought, where the, the thought itself even prior to what one might think of as knowledge becomes amplified in its importance in recognition that this is an act of active, this is an active thought. 
And not only is this an active thought, but if I use it in a Simondian sort of pre-individuated sense, then this active thought is already preconditioned by all of the dynamics in the world. And if we and if we actually understand or even attempt to understand those dynamics as already residing within ourselves as a potential, then the act of thought becomes something that we can choose to make affirmative. And see, this is what I, you know, but and this is where I deviate from Fanon, right? Because Fanon, in a way, he wants to breach race, but he can't get out of it, right? <laughs> he can't get out of the cycle. And so a way it's the nihilist project. And and as I argue for winter, you know, I, you know, because she created this autopoetic lens, she can't get out of the membrane of the system itself. And so the perception then is the imaginary or the uh, or, or the liminal becomes a perception that's that can seek outside of the system to then rearticulate the system. And what I'm suggesting is there is no membrane. That is the protein imaginary, even though it feels real, even though it acts real, there is no imaginary. So one does not have to act to reach the imaginary. The imaginary was already a precondition of their collision with the boundary. It's the boundary that identifies one's ability to imagine, not catalyzes one's potential to imagine. I hope that makes sense. Right? So basically, I can imagine even before I encounter the boundary that forces me to imagine. Maybe just to the protein. So, so uh, maybe, maybe because it's really crucial, I think, and um, somehow something I haven't heard yet in this clarity, I have to grant that totally like, uh, <laughs> I wonder if, you know, like, make it again, like, can you just do it again? So where is it the protein? What is it, like, where, because that's the question where, where also whiteness reasserts itself in technology, no? Um, and I'm, I'm just wondering if you could try to rephrase it once more. About the protein, you know, of course, you know, I'm thinking explicitly about variability. And, you know, even plainly, you know, about taking on different forms, right? And what that would mean psychosocially is, you know, the ability to take different forms and shapes and morphologies, right? And that, that can apply politically, economically, so on and so forth. You know, you become this type of shape, shape shifter. And in a way, this is why I start the book with, with Joy Baumlini's Aspire Machine, because she did it. She just got distracted by representation, but she she had this vision to create an, a machine that would allow one to shapeshift into a protein imaginary, any protein imaginary that already comes from a libim, libiminal sense of being, right? That's, that's what the spirit animal is, right? <laughs> I mean, I, you can't explain metaphysically why, you know, you might feel like a lion or a giraffe or a rock or, you know, or anything in this world. And then to start the creation of this machine that's then to, can interpret that and project it out into the world. See, it requires a moment of computation that exceeds anything in facial recognition that we can imagine and know. Right. Because it can't just reduce that experience, that interpersonal experience. It has to expand that experience to then articulate it as this type of animal that's aspiring to. In the book, what I argue is I love joy. I love her work. So I hope she doesn't hate me for this. But in the book, what I argue is that because the confines of the racial imaginary are so strong, she got distracted into trying to include the black voice into what was already categorized. So basically what that means quite simply for me is that if we resist that moment, what it means is that, maybe I'll just put it, I'll just put it plainly. If my existence as a so-called black male has only been defined by either a white imaginary, either a colonial violence or, or displacement, so on and so forth, if those 
imaginaries had only been defined by the fiction of hierarchy and categorization. And those categories and hierarchies have been defined only by the illusion of difference. What it means is that who I perceive myself to be is already in flux. And the moment that I see myself within that representation, it is in the Simodian fence, it's just an amplification of that perception. It is not the solidified form. It's only an illusion in itself. So that's why it's not a leap for me to think about a protein imaginary that can take on different forms because I have no substantial data to say I'm any form. I'm, we're no forms. <laughs> So you don't have to imagine being a new form. You just have to act on it because it's already available. There is nothing in this world that has not been constructed into a perceptual framework of meaning. And across time and even in the present, we attempt to redefine those shapes and forms and figures in, in very nice and generous ways. But what we lose is the idea that they're illusions in themselves. And that's why I was saying previously, the imaginary is not something to tap into. The imaginary is something to reveal under the guise of the delusion. And that's why I draw back to Fanon. So you polish the mirror. It's achieved by polishing the mirror and understanding the violences and chaos. Yeah. yeah. That's why you say there is no membrane. There's no membrane. It can't be. It, it, it's not... It's not possible that there could be, you know, there, there are micro membranes, you know, there are you know, types of membranes that you might find inside of an eggshell, you know, very loose, very permeable. To say that there weren't would, would reduce the everyday experiences of any individual violences, you know, all those types of things. There are membranes in this world. Calling for us to like go, like totalizing dimension. Complete. But it begins for me within the psychosocial. You know, the, the moment of change for me was, you know, drawing back on Fred Moten. And I'm going to summarize this because I always, I try to quote it and I always get it wrong. But, it's, you know, it's when Moten basically says early on, you know, imagine there's nothing wrong with blackness. Extend that to other forms of difference. I mean, imagine the act of thought to enter into a space already with the preconditioned belief that there is nothing wrong with your categorical imperative. It elicits a different psychosocial act. It puts choice back on in the individual, whether you choose to think about the moments of subjection, or whether you choose to think about more affirmative, optimistic view, or whether you combine them both. Because I believe we modulate between them both, right? I don't believe it's one or the other. I believe we modulate between them. And I'll, I'll argue with the Afrofuturists and Black optimists later on, but I think we modulate between both areas. But when I think about this, you know, it brings me to thinking about AI and machine learning and, and thinking about, imagine, imagine if I weren't a solidified being that was fragmented into pieces of data, subsumed into an algorithmic process, patterned and optimized. Imagine if I were already a protein imaginary. Imagine if what the machine is interpreting is merely one form or one shell of who I am, of what I've become, of where I've been. And then now imagine what my choices might be if I now understand, I don't even know to understand how the machine works. I don't have to see inside of the black box. And that's why I was saying machine learning is a gift because it will show you what it imagines of you, <laughs> which means you see a reflection of yourself, <laughs> which means that if you want to take a new morphology, you can just imagine and start acting differently and it will mirror that as well. So basically just, if you want to see it in practice, go to Spotify. I mean, you could in the same day, you could be a country music fan as you could be a hip hop fan as you can be a, <laughs> you can be whatever you want. And if we were to take that as social beings and then think about the consequences of our relationships, that's what I ask in the book. And that for me is the black technical object, that being which can take a protein imaginary as the first act of thought 
given both the duress of this genealogy of algorithmic and data processes and also the idea of a speculative future, which might indicate some breach or freedom. You know what? I think I will attempt to answer the question just really briefly, um, you know, in thinking about the terms of alienation. You know, when I, when I think about the the type of alienation that we've become accustomed to. Of course, we have various philosophical frameworks to place that alienation. Most of us on the line here know alienation just as a, you know, an interpersonal type of experience or maybe a psychosocial type of experience that results in a type of neuroses or anything else. But for me, I take a more affirmative view of alienation by suggesting that alienation is no more than that which signals the opportunity for for change it identifies that which we are alienated by even if we do not understand the origin of that alienation but more so psychosocially it alerts us to the potentiality to create an action to mitigate that alienation so in a way for me alienation is not something it's a necessary crucial part into creating a more equitable world between humans and even humans and technology. And it's not something to shy away from because it becomes the signal in which one individual or group can recognize their incompatibility with the world. And if we pay attention to those signals, it points us in a direction for action, resistance, and change.